Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 15th of December, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex nice Thompson, to bringing us uh, eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Um, well, we'll get straight on with uh, events in Parliament uh, uh, yesterday, last night, uh, and of course, it was a vote, uh, and the vote didn't go too well for Boris, uh, over 100. Uh, people saying no to uh, COVID vaccine passports. Uh, the government absolutely, uh, absolutely denying that these are vaccine passports. They're calling them COVID passes. It's not a completely different thing, Brian. You've got to understand. Um, so there's the speaker reading out the result. Uh, so let's just have a quick look at uh, how this worked. Uh, 366 MPs uh, voted for the uh, COVID pass uh, and 123 MPs voted against. Now, this was the biggest of several uh, rebellions against Boris on several, uh, I think there were three public health votes. Um, but if we just uh, look at that in a bit of detail, uh, we can see that it's mostly Conservatives uh, that voted no. Uh, but there are some uh, Labour and Liberal Democrats and a few independents, DUP in there as well. So let's just uh, look at the, uh, the list. Diane Abbott, of course, always appears at the top because her name begins with A. Uh, and uh, we'll scroll down through the usual suspects, Graham Brady, Andy, Andrew Bridgen, uh, Ian Duncan-Smith, uh, and so on, as we run down the list. Mostly Conservatives, as I said, and Boris Johnson uh, suffering a, uh, a rebellion of, I believe, 98, or it could have been 102, depending on uh, how it was counted. Um, so, Alex, uh, welcome to the programme, first of all, and just very briefly, uh, what do you, what are your thoughts on on this and the fact that uh, some MPs were prepared to, uh, to to take a stand on this and actually um, some MPs using not dissimilar language to the language that we've been using over the last several months? I think that it's not too self-congratulatory, Mike, to say that the new media, with us perhaps near the vanguard, have swung the minds of a few of these MPs. They may, in fact, be watching clandestinely right now. Certainly MPs who have been close to us and our allies uh, in the public sphere, such as uh, Steve Baker MP springs to mind, are now using talking points that you could almost call UK column talking points, not that we wish to claim them. There is clearly something that's causing what seems to be about a quarter of the governing Conservative Party, so a quarter of the backbench MPs on the government side, uh, to say no. And it may be that a critical mass of constituents in those particular constituencies have done what we continue against the cynicism of others to recommend and to say you must require your MPs not to vote for tyranny, a closing point in Ian Davis's latest piece on our website. Uh, I think it really does show that it is not uh, a lost cause requiring your MP politely, firmly and lawfully to uh, do their parliamentary job, which of course is not to obey party orders, but to say no to the executive. Indeed. Okay, thank you for that, uh, Alex. Well, I decided just to have a little look to see uh, what Labour people were making of what had happened. And uh, I visited Labour Heartlands here um, and some very good material. Let's just pop this one up on screen. Uh, so this was the headline. Now, this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the beginning of the end of Boris Johnson. Unfortunately, Starmer saved the day. Well, of course, that is absolutely it, that uh, it's been Starmer who has consistently forced Labour to vote Tory. 
uh, you could almost make him the uh, deputy leader of the Conservative Party. Mark. Well, the standard uh, rhetoric out of both Starmer and uh, his subordinates has been that the Labour Party will not play party politics with public health. But of course, that's exactly what they're doing because they're presenting themselves as uh, being the defenders of, of uh, uh, public health in the face of a Tory party, which is uh, rebelling against uh, Boris yeah. Johnson. So uh, so they are playing party politics with, with public health uh, I, I, in general. I absolutely think they are. And the question is, where, where does the public health come from? What uh, politics of public health are we talking about? But before we get to that, just a little bit more of Labour Heartlands, of course, in their article, they said, health measures only passed due to Labour votes after Keir Starmer said it was his patriotic duty to back them. That's uh, what you're talking about. Uh, they said that even ex-PM Theresa May abstained. Uh, but in the article was buried this uh, wonderful graphic, which I thought we'd have to bring it up on screen. It says oblivious. Uh, and then there's Keir Starmer with a man holding up a couple of billboards. Any other leader would be 20 points ahead. And then the bottom of the uh, image is Starmer's holding Labour back. Well, is he holding Labour back or has Starmer destroyed the Labour Party so that it's now just become a, um, a poodle of the Conservative Party? Uh, this is what caught my attention in Labour Heartlands was that you were immediately linked through another article which said Sir Keir Starmer, the Trilateral Commission and Jeffrey Epstein and of course, this is where we're getting to the meat of the subject. So uh, when Keir Starmer is talking about health policy, is he talking about UK health policy or is he talking about uh, who and global health policy? And I rather think it's the latter. So here was the flag that if you want to understand Jeffrey Epstein, you need to understand the Trilateral Commission. Uh, because he's fully involved with it. You mean Keir Starmer? Uh, I beg your pardon, Keir Starmer, fully involved with it. And uh, um, the article also had this embedded tweet from Keir Starmer where he's saying, lively discussion this morning at Trilateral Commission, different points of view is an understatement, different visions for Britain. Well, that's a remarkable statement from him because we don't have any discussion about Britain in Parliament at the moment. It's simply become a rubber stamping machine uh, for whatever the cabinet line is. Uh, but this is the reality. The power base is not in Westminster, of course, it's in these uh, think tanks. But if you want to have a look at the Trilateral Commission, it becomes quite difficult uh, because there are different variants of it, different clubs of the Trilateral Commission worldwide. And if you go to sort of pin down who's who, you might end up with the Japanese sector or the European sector or the American sector. Uh, but this gives you an overview, really, of what it's about. Special virtual global meeting on capitalism in transition. So we haven't had any debate in Westminster about the change in capital democracy, capitalism and democracy. But this is what uh, Keir Starmer is involved with in the background. And if you want to get into the detail, you've really got to go into the small print. We won't do it all, but it says here the Trilateral Commission is a non-governmental policy orientated forum that brings together leaders in their individual capacity from the worlds of business, government, academia, press and media, as well as civil society. So um, that seems to take us into the world of George Soros. But this is 
uh, participatory democracy at work on a global scale. You can get a bit more if you go and have a look at uh, Wiki. And uh, they are kind enough to tell you who the key people are as of September 2021. So if our viewers and listeners want to have a look, uh, you can see David Rockefeller just about halfway down the screen, uh, deceased as the founder. And interesting that underneath is Peter Sutherland, deceased, the honor honorary European chairman. And of course, we've talked about Peter Sutherland a lot because he's the man, he was the man. Uh, promoting migration as a means of breaking down the nation states. So what we can say with confidence is there's a group of people with immense power, no transparency, no accountability, but Keir Starmer sucked into the middle of it. But let's remind ourselves that, of course, Boris is not really working for the Conservatives. He's working for the World Economic Forum as a young global leader, maybe not so young these days. So if we return to the image and the excellent work of Labour Heartlands, I think we need to add a bit because, of course, this isn't about party politics. This is about these vast, powerful think tanks, World Economic Forum for Boris, uh, Trilateral Commission for Keir Starmer. So the real conversation in this image, I think, was this. Uh, Boris is saying to his mate, uh, Keir, thanks, mate. You did good. Let's hope we can soon drop all of this political party nonsense, scrap the UK as a nation state and get on with global government under a rules-based international order. order. Yes. Uh, Alex. I have to put point out with my sharp ears as an interpreter that Brian has become culpable of the anti-Semitic diphthong in his segment there. He described Jeffrey Epstein, which is the way, of course, that the Americans uh, pronounce these names that end in S-T-E-I-N, as Epstein, which is perfectly fine if you're talking about the sculptor Jacob Epstein, for example. But if you say Jeffrey Epstein, then as Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader of the opposition, found out, you get accused of being a domestic extremist because of your pronunciation of the name. So that is the level of detail that Keir Starmer's immediate circle now go to to blacken the reputations of people. And of course, just a few days ago, uh, Sir Keir said that his predecessor would never again get to contest uh, a constituency in Britain as a Labour Party member of parliament. Just another way of lifting the on the fraud that is the political party and the manifesto trick. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that, Alex. Uh, okay. Now let's uh, move on to this uh, because the Joint Committee on the Draft Online Safety Bill has issued its report. So the, uh, the date at which this bill gets uh, presented to Parliament uh, moves closer. Uh, the Joint Committee on the Draft Online Safety Bill report on the Online Safety Bill, we can read the report, but they produced a helpful uh, little video clip. Uh, to tell us all about it. Uh, so, of course, Damien Collins is the chair now. He was formerly the chair of the uh, uh, Committee for Culture, uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sport, and he's rabidly uh, anti-disinformation, uh, as, as they call it, disinformation, inverted commas, and anti-misinformation. Uh, and we'll see uh, exactly what has happened in this, uh, uh, in this report in a second. Uh, Damien Collins uh, certainly focusing on Russia to a certain degree, but also on a many on many other forms of what he describes as disinformation and misinformation as well. Um, so uh, the online safety bill is uh, due to be uh, going into Parliament uh, early next year or at some point in 
first half of next year. Uh, and uh, they say that this new law will finally make internet service providers responsible for what's happening on their platforms, including for serious crimes like child abuse, fraud, racist abuse, promoting self-harm and also violence against women, uh, for which previously there was little enforce, enforcement action. And uh, this, of course, if you look at uh, how the mainstream media has been covering the release of this report, uh, these have been the types of things they've been focusing on, uh, child abuse, fraud, racist abuse, uh, promotion of self-harm and so on. So uh, let's just have a look and see what they have uh, uh, recommended. First of all, they say that big tech has failed its chance to self-regulate. They must obey this new law and comply with Ofcom as the UK regulator or face the sanctions. So the sanctions include huge fines, I believe up to 10% of global GDP, of global turnover, sorry. Uh, and uh, or there's the opportunity for uh, named uh, directors to end up with a criminal prosecution. Um, and uh, Ofcom, Ofcom is the key here because Ofcom is going to be the regulator of the internet. Remember Ofcom staffed at a senior level, mainly by ex-BBC people. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, Ofcom should set the standards by which big tech will be held accountable. Their powers to investigate, audit and fine the companies should be increased. Uh, the next one, Ofcom should draw up mandatory codes of practice for internet service providers. For example, they should write a code of practice, a code of conduct on risk areas like child exploitation and terrorism. They should also be able to introduce additional codes as new features or problem areas arise. So the legislation doesn't become outdated as technology develops. We'll come back to this in a second. This is a really important uh, point. Uh, uh, and they should require that service providers to conduct internal risk assessments to record reasonable foreseeable threats to user safety, including the pen potential harmful impact of algorithms, not just content. Uh, the new, new regulatory regime must re uh, contain robust protections for freedom of expression, including the automatic exemption for recognized news publishers uh, and acknowledge that journalism and public interest speech and, uh, are fundamental to democracy. And one of the things that they say in their, uh, in their report is that, uh, for example, a state-backed uh, media organization, and by that, of course, they're referring to RT or to, uh, um, what's the Iranian one? Uh, can't remember off the yeah. top of my head. But uh, RT in particular uh, would not get recognition. Um, there is a question whether smaller news publishers would get recognition. Um, that is not answered at this stage. Uh, scams and fraud generated in a name to tackle harmful advertising, such as scam adverts, uh, paid for advertising should be covered by the bill. Uh, and they say that service providers should be required to create an online safety policy for users to agree with, similar to their terms of conditions of service. Um, so let's look a bit more of the detail then. Clause 11 of the draft bill, they said, uh, has been widely criticized for its breadth and for delegating the authority of the state to service providers over the definition of content that is harmful and what they should do about it. Well, the key point about it is that uh, Clause 11 doesn't define, uh, you know, or at least in the bill as a whole, uh, many of the terms remain undefined. And so actually uh, it was being left up to the service providers to, to create definitions for what is harmful content. And when they're talking about harmful content, they're talking about content which, as they describe it, falls under the threshold of illegality. So, so it's not just illegal content, but it's also legal content, which they don't like. Uh, we recommend that Clause 11 of the draft bill is removed 
we recommend that it is replaced by a statutory requirement on providers to have in place proportionate systems and processes to identify and mitigate reasonably foreseeable risks of harm arising from regular regulated activities defined under the bill. So Alex, uh, bring you in at this point, because this is a spectacular situation that we have here. Uh, we have the situation that clause 11 and other clauses were allowing scope, <coughs> scope creep uh, on this bill. <coughs> Are you there? Are you still there? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but clause 11, uh, if that's removed, will allow the um, <coughs> organisations to set those instead. This is an angle that we hadn't previously expected. We were uh, already, and other critics of this online safety bill, uh, expecting that uh, government and the, the members of government who sit in parliament, although we now know that's unconstitutional, but they do so, that they would uh, delegate the uh, requirement or the details of, of setting what's uh, harmful but not illegal content to um, uh, statutory instruments. So letting government ministries uh, tell the relevant Secretary of State what to do. Here we have a further delegation of that out to the providers themselves. So you could say that it's uh, analogous to the going direct reset in finance, whereby BlackRock, providing an analogous role to that of a, a Facebook, for example, in the financial world, says, well, there's no need for central banks equivalent to regulators or, or, or ministers, for, as it were, to bother themselves with the details. We, the platforms that people actually do business with, that are seen when people transact, uh, we will do it all. So there is actually a complete removal of any public service whatsoever or any accountability there. Uh, we have often been struck by the lack of definition of one particular key word, which is even, of course, in it was in the earlier version of the bill title itself, the idea of harm. But the infographic that you started this segment with has finally defined that for us, of course. The relevant parliamentary committee, using its uh, infographic for eight-year-olds, shows a lady logging on, seeing something she doesn't like. Her jaw falls open and she claps her hand to her mouth. <gasps> I don't like that. So that is what the online harm is. That is causing harm to adults. And uh, that is to be, uh, as we now know, treated equivalent in seriousness uh, to child pornography. Quite, sim quite simply, there, there is no definition, definitional difference in the bill between the two. As for falling below the threshold of illegality, uh, that means precisely nothing, of course. Uh, if everything in this broadcast is lawful and legal, which it is, then you could describe the whole of this broadcast as falling under the threshold of illegality. It's, uh, it simply means we don't like it, but we can't do anything about it. Well, they will be able to if it becomes the Online Safety Act. Um, absolutely. Okay, so let's uh, come back to the uh, the recommendations. Uh, these definitions, they say, should reference special areas of law that are recognised in the offline world, uh, or or are specifically recognised as legitimate grounds for interfer interference in freedom of expression. So they're talking about uh, various definitions. Uh, we're going to come on to a list of some things in a second, but I thought that was a really spectacular set of words there specifically recognized as legitimate grounds for interference in freedom of expression. This is the, the kind of thinking here. So let's just uh, run through their list. Abuse, harassment, or stirring up of violence or hatred based on the protected characteristics in the Equality Act of 2010. Uh, content or activity likely to cause harm amounting to significant psychological distress to a likely audience uh, defined in line with the uh, the Law Commission offence, uh, that typo, unfortunately, is uh, as a result of uh, 
uh, the fact that when we when I copied the text out of the, their PDF, half the characters didn't uh, didn't uh, appear. So uh, we uh, apologies for that. Uh, threatening communications that would lead a reasonable person to fear that the threat might be carried out. And th this is the kind of language that we see, a reasonable person, <laughs> a likely audience. What does that mean? That, this is, that none of this is defined. Um, knowing, knowingly falsely, uh, sorry, false knowingly communications. false communications likely to cause significant physical or psychological harm to a reasonable person, likely to cause a reasonable person, undefined, Disinformation that's likely to endanger public health, which may include anti-vaccination disinformation. Again, who decides what's information and what's disinformation? Uh, and finally here, disinformation that's likely to undermine the integrity and probity of electoral systems. So this is again, harking back to this idea <coughs> that Russia has interfered in uh, Brexit, for example. Uh, the viral spread of misinformation and disinformation, they say, poses a serious threat to societies around the world. Media literacy is not a standalone solution. We have heard how small numbers of people are able to leverage online services functionality to spread disinformation virally and use recommendation tools to attract people to ever more extreme behavior. So again, they're pushing this narrative that uh, you know certain types of information on the internet are creating a right-wing extreme. Uh, extreme. This has resulted in large-scale uh, harm, including deaths, from COVID-19, from fake medical cures, and from violence. Uh, we recommend content neutral safety by design requirements set out as minimum standards in mandatory codes of practice. These will be a vital part of tackling regulated content and activity that creates a risk of societal harm, uh, especially the spread of disinformation. So uh, nobody should be under any illusions that this is not really about child sexual exploitation and and uh, um, terrorism, uh, both of which are illegal uh, already and could be dealt with already. This is about focusing on disinformation. And you, if you want to get more background on this, uh, Ian Davis published this article on the 7th of December, uh, the Online Safety Act, an act of betrayal. Uh, I recommend everybody reads it. Um, but remember, this is only one uh, bill uh, or act of four that we are highlighting, which we're labeling as dictatorship, uh, the Covert Human Intelligence C Criminal Conduct Act, <clears throat> which allows the British government uh, to authorize agents of the state to commit criminal acts. Uh, and there's no limit on the, on the criminal acts they can commit in the legislation. Uh, the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, well, of course, that stops uh, public protest. So you've got no way to have your voice heard on the streets. Uh, then we have the online safety bill that stops your voice being heard on the internet or it will do. Uh, and finally, we have the, uh, on our list here, the counter state threats bill. Um, and this changes the official secrets act in particular and makes it very much harder for anybody to act as a whistleblower or to have any kind of whistleblower status. Also extremely dangerous. It also puts uh, journalists at risk who cover uh, whistleblowers. Uh, and uh, so Ian Davis has written another article uh, and that was published yesterday, uh, The New Normal Dictatorship. Please read this, please share it, uh, and the other one. This is absolutely key. We've got to keep pressure on MPs to stop this legislation. Um, Alex, uh, what uh, you, you've read Ian's article, what, what are your thoughts on it? 
Well, he just gets better and better in his analysis, as Ian Davis, and uh, this is the most refined yet. Uh, I may even try to do a reading of it on my YouTube channel over the Christmas break, because I think it needs to be shared with people who wouldn't normally uh, bother reading as many paragraphs as Ian has written. I perish the thought that that would include some members of Parliament, but... Uh, Maybe they'll listen to an audio version. No, this, this sets out very systematically with plenty of references. Uh, the uh, Well, the, ultimately what it sets out is the intermediate nature of national governments, including the British government and the devolved uh, administrations in various parts of the United Kingdom. They are simply doing the bidding of what Ian has aptly termed the global public-private partnership. Um, of course, the final backstop, if you ever find yourself selected for jury service or find yourself in the defendant's box against any of these tyrannical acts, is that wherever we have a jury, the jury is above the judge as, a ju as the judge of the law, not just of the facts. Never mind what you're told in court and the glower you get from the judge. If you are a juror, or if you are addressing jurors who have the power to acquit you, call upon them as Clive Ponting did uh, in an official secrets uh, type of trial uh, in 1983 um, to acquit. Uh, they simply need to uh, be told that this is bad law. And in the English tradition, we know that bad law is no law at all. So don't be hoodwinked about this. But the, the, uh, the legal claim will be certain things are illegal, but a jury can overturn them all. Do learn and inwardly digest what Ian has said. I don't think anyone else has brought it together as cogently as he has in that article. OK, thank you for that. Now, let's come on to uh, an inconvenient truth. Radical change needed to online safety bill to tackle climate disinformation. So this is the Carnegie. Uh, well, what are the, what, this is another one of these uh, trusts, tr foundations. Yes. So um, imagine my shock, Mike, uh, they're still peddling Al Gore's film title, An Inconvenient Truth, a, a widely debunked film about climate change when it was still version 1.0, uh, global warming, um, is still being peddled. So Carnegie UK has, if you look at the icon uh, at the top of their page, in, in fainter green type, you see that the sub-brand under which Carnegie, one of these tax-exempt foundations, is pushing this out is collective well-being. So for those who've been following David's ongoing studies uh, of the Scottish government's new national ideology of national well-being or collective well-being, yet more evidence that this is coming from the think tanks, which of course in Ian Davis's writing are shown to be a top level of the global public-private partnership, those who stand above governments. So we're being told as the proposition in what you can see on screen at the moment, the unexamined assumption that climate change, no longer called global warming, or according to The Guardian, global heating, climate change is a serious threat to the safety and security of United Kingdom citizens. I shan't read the whole of what follows, uh, but if you tap once more, you will see that uh, just one of the seven or so key recommendations that Carnegie is ordering MPs to, to put into the bill as further amendments, even at this stage after two rounds of committee hearings, um, they're telling us under point six that advertising, which we just heard about in a previous context, should be brought into the scope of the online safety regime. Interesting choice of word. Now, um, it was the first line of that that really struck me. Climate change is a serious threat to the safety and security of United Kingdom citizens. For several hundred years, we had the constitutional idea of the birthrights of Englishmen and the birthrights of Scots. Then for about two or three hundred years of classic liberalism, we had the idea of the immunities and entitlements of British subjects. And then when I was very young, we found that we weren't subject anymore. And the final iteration of this, uh, this discourse is that we are UK citizens, a very different concept. And because of our 
our putative safety and security being threatened, these things have to be brought in. So as always, and it's the same under continental law and it's spreading to Britain now, the theoretical blob of all of us and what we feel happy and sad about is made to outweigh the very real immunities of flesh and blood people who live in the present. Uh, now, I went through to see what else we could find from Carnegie at the moment. And uh, I found it quite notable that uh, in the same brand of collective well-being, we have this. Values. This has been published in October. Values, a compass for working together on collective well-being. And uh, let's bring that up. And we see that uh, there's a nice uh, four-leaf clover diagram of uh, the values that should motivate collective well-being. So maybe this is what's coming Scotland's way in particular. It must be change motivated, it must be challenging, it must be collaborative, and it must be kind. If you were thinking that these are the sets of values of uh, naive schoolgirls, then it may be relevant to have a look at the mugshots of the two authors for Carnegie UK who wrote this, Rachel Heidecker and Hannah Ormston. So the birthrights of Englishmen, uh, the immunities of British subjects go by the board because in the collective well-being model, persons of this degree of expertise and constitutional knowledge uh, and accountability to the public are telling us what our uh, safety is to be as a UK citizens. And Alex, if I might just interject, uh, uh, reading on my screen here, uh, the one that really gives me the creeps, I think is the right expression, is kind. It says, we believe in radical kindness. So this is not kindness as we might traditionally understand it to be. It's not scriptural kindness. This is radical kindness. This is killing some members of the population in order to protect others. It's not far-fetched what you're saying there, Brian, because these things are all theological, uh, whether disguised or, or, or uh, you know, in your face. And using the adjective radical before, before the name of a cardinal virtue is something that was pioneered in uh, New World Order friendly churches in the charismatic end of Protestantism for some decades. Uh, radical worship, radical kindness, new definitions to biblical concepts, absolutely. And of course, the big one this year is that a lot of uh, legislators in various Western countries are saying that abortion is an act of radical self-love. So absolutely what you were pointing out there, Brian, radical plus cardinal virtue uh, is a twisting of the virtue to mean I have a perfect right to murder you on behalf of others. I am not suggesting that Rachel and Hannah, no doubt not long out of school, um, uh, were thinking that, not consciously at least, uh, but they are useful faces to be used for such an agenda. Yes, I'm, I'm quite sure they are being used, the pair of them. Okay, let's uh, let's move on then to uh, Dominic Raab, and of course he was in uh, the House of Commons uh, yesterday uh, to announce a new Bill of Rights. Um, so uh, let's uh, see if we can get this on screen. Right, okay, so uh, uh, proposed new legislation is how the, uh, the government uh, describes it, aims to strike a proper balance between individuals' rights, personal responsibility, and the wider public interest. Uh, Alex. Just before we move on with this, how do you strike a proper balance between individual rights, personal responsibility and the wider public interest? It is entirely impossible to do so, Mike, because uh, the first two of what you mentioned are absolute and cannot be infringed. And the third is, uh, by definition, uh, an amorphous mass uh, and will be defined by whatever is whispered into the minds of the judge uh, or panel uh, making the decision. 
But this is okay. it's, it's well known in, in continental law. Uh, it was kept out of common law for a long time precisely because the public interest is undefinable. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the slogan that was shouted in many continental revolutions that ended in being bloodbaths. You must do, do this in the public interest. Uh, so the public interest uh, is probably the interest of the government of the day. Is that a fair statement? Well, uh, certainly it is, Mike, because we've already seen that if you harm government interests these days, or ultimately global public-private partnership interests, then you are said to be harming society. Therefore, society is the creature of the global public-private partnership and doesn't mean any real people. It means putative people as a mass, as a flock. Um, so they go on to say this would be achieved while retaining the UK's commitment to the European Convention on Human Rights. So again, my question to you is, how could that possibly be achieved while retaining uh, the UK's commitment to the European Convention on Human Rights? Not at all. The, the ECHR has set out some uh, absolute and uninfringible uh, immunities, particularly not to be murdered and not to be tortured, as focused on in Ian Davis's latest article. Uh, it, although Britain was a sponsor of this human rights model, uh, it has now decided that that's, that was for the plebs abroad. For the plebs at home, uh, a lesser standard is necessary. So you know, it, it's an empty phrase again, uh, but then so is the whole of human rights. Okay, so they, they go on to say the UK will remain party to the EHCR and continue to meet its obligations under the Convention and all other international human rights treaties. However, ministers will ensure the UK Supreme Court is the final say on UK rights by making clear that they should not blindly follow the Stra Strasbourg Court. It will mean that rights and inter uh, are interpreted in a UK context uh, with respect to the country's case law, traditions and intention of elected lawmakers. Uh, but uh, um, earlier on, they say uh, the proposed measure will restore Parliament's role as the ultimate decision maker on laws uh, impacting the UK population. So I'm not clear how Parliament can be the uh, ultimate decision maker, while the Supreme Court is the ultimate decision maker. Uh, and then they go on to say, uh, meanwhile, greater prominence will be given to the rights of jury trial uh, and freedom of expression. <laughs> I'm looking forward to see how they pull that one off in the context of the uh, online harms uh, or the online safety bill. But anyway, uh, meaning the space for rigorous debate will reflect the UK's traditions and security and secure its values. Uh, the, and this is the bit that, uh, that people should hang on to their hats for this one, because this, this, is, uh, this is a classic uh, UK government statement. The UK has a long history of defending rights from Magna Carta in 2015 to the 1689 claim and Bill of Rights. Uh, the Slave Trade Act of 1807 and the 1918 Representation of the People Act. Um, is that a fair statement, do you think? <laughs> um, look at what happened to the Chagos Islanders. Uh, this was actually before the, the switcheroo was played, so they were still uh, called British subjects back then, but they were described by a Foreign Office Mandarin as Man Fridays who had to be deported. So, no, um, it's always been the assertion of our rights against the executive. Parliament's historic role, together with the courts, in particular in the form of the juries, has been to have some of us standing up to the executive and saying you've crossed the line this time. So the executive doesn't grant munificently any such rights and they cannot appropriate the name of the United Kingdom to themselves to say that they, the government in parliament, have done these things. We've asserted it against them after long struggles. Yeah, exactly. So they have started a three-month consultation. Uh, they haven't given, given any information about who's uh, being invited to take part in that consultation at this point in time, but we'll let everybody know as soon as we can. Uh, but uh, this new Bill of Rights 
is something that uh, has been talked about for many, many years. It may even go back as far as Tony Blair. Um, I, I can't remember. I think it, I think it did. Could well do. Yes. Well, we just add to that that uh, whenever UK uh, column viewers, listeners have said they don't quite understand what's going on, advice that we sometimes give is say just consider the opposite of what the government appears to be saying. So as we watch this clear Sovietization of UK coming in, we shouldn't be surprised to see the uh, UK government pumping out uh, interesting little um, graphics and videos on democracy. This is the uh, first uh, tweet that came through my inbox from Twitter. So uh, we've got on Human Rights Day and every day we as partners and allies celebrate democracy, protecting our rights for every individual and community at home and abroad. And that gives you a warm and not very cuddly feeling. But let's have a look at the little video that they also pushed out. In democracy, we fight corruption by empowering individuals to stand up against it and to hold each other to account. Democracy builds safer and more prosperous societies. This is democracy. Hashtag democracy allies. So what, democracy is a cartoon, is it? Well, democracy is a cartoon. That came straight out of the cabinet office. But of course, if you stand up as UK column or any, any other new media outlet to hold the government to account, you are going to be crushed by the government. So the hypocrisy, of course, is breathtaking. But notice that the UK public treated as children as usual. You need a little cartoon so that you can understand what democracy is. So don't worry your little heads, just stay at home, look at the TV and allow uh, Boris Johnson and his colleagues to protect us and run society. Uh, nobody should be uh, feeling safe and comfortable at the moment as we watch what is clearly a power grab to take us into a Soviet. There's no question this is what's happening, Mike. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options uh, for you to join us there and uh, make donations and so on. Uh, and if you are watching uh, what we're producing for free, then we do need your financial support. And so uh, any support you can give uh, would be very much appreciated. Um, and uh, uh, also, please do share the material that you find on the various platforms. Uh, do share Ian Davis's articles that are on the front page of the UK column because they are vital for people to understand uh, uh, what he's talking about there and uh, to encourage uh, people to get involved in uh, at least, at the very least, uh, campaigning uh, with your MP on, on these topics. Um, I just want to say once again, thank you very much to everybody that's bought a hoodie, but if you're uh, hoping to get one uh, from the shop before Christmas, I'm afraid uh, it's very unlikely we'll be able to get uh, uh, any orders placed now uh, out by Christmas, we're at the behest of our suppliers. And uh, well, I think that's... Uh, that's it's not nice. a problem, Mike. Absence makes the heart uh, grow fonder. Grow fonder. Yes. So uh, people will be looking forward to that as a post-Christmas surprise. Uh, we just want to remind people to uh, share the Doctors for COVID Ethics Symposium because uh, some really great research, people speaking out, qualified people with evidence, and this needs to be shared with as many people as possible. And on a very good note, the uh, David Noakes fundraiser for legal 
uh, fees has now got up to £39,635. So thank you very much to everybody who's contributed. So very nearly at that £50,000 goal. Uh, but something really wonderful has happened that as a result of that money, uh, David is out of prison at the moment. If you go to the GoFundMe, there's a notice published by his family. It says, Dear all, I'm very happy to share with you some very positive news we've received today. Thanks to all your donations and some solid legal work, we've been able to secure David's temporary release from jail on compassionate grounds. He's been released to attend the funeral of his mum and afterwards he will return to France to be under house arrest until his judgment on the 28th of February. Many thanks to everyone for your support. Without you, uh, this would not have happened. Now, we're going to say thank you very much to everybody that's uh, donated. And this break out of prison will be a really huge boost for David Noakes. So don't look at it that he's only got a few days out of prison. This time out of prison will be a huge tonic to David. And of course, it's shown that your financial help has brought in the legal expertise to make a difference. So well done to everybody there. Now, if we're interested in the truth, uh, probably we don't want to go to full fact, but let's just pop them up on screen because a little while ago, we highlighted that we were fascinated to see on the full fact webpage uh, let's highlight it here. It said, from time to time, we host secondees from the Government Statistical Service and the Office of National Statistics. Get in touch to find out more. Now, we were intrigued because, of course, the ONS says it's completely independent, and we were puzzled as to why it would be working with full fact that many people criticise as being really just a, a helper of government propaganda. Maybe that's a bit strong, maybe not. Uh, but we decided to uh, ask a few questions. So we sent a freedom of information to ONS. We asked, it, we asked for the start date on which the ONS first began sending secondees to full fact, the subsequent dates on which they worked, the number of individuals, their managerial rank and professional specialism, the total financial value, the heads of agreement, contract, heads of terms, or any other document detailing the arrangements. Now, we're very pleased to say we did get a reply back from the ONS. They sent this nice uh, little email back, and initially it just repeats the questions, but uh, then it leads you to a link that uh, produced an answer. It said, thank you for your FOI request in respect of comments to fullfact.org. A search of our database covering outward secondments from uh, 2018 onwards has revealed no such arrangements with this organization. Um, now, we have immediately gone back and asked the ONS to supply details of any full fat secondees before 2018, and we're not sure why the ONS would choose a date of 2018 as their start point. We asked for anyone who has gone from ONS to full fact. So we now wait to see whether we can lever the truth out of the ONS, but maybe it's full fact that's not telling the truth. It's getting very difficult to see. But we just remind people that when we look at full fact, uh, they are operating as a company and a charity. And you can see the huge explosion in money that's coming in. So we're now up to sort of two and a half million pounds and 35 staff, I think it is, 
running this organization which claims off its own back to be telling us the truth and factual information. So we at the moment just wait to see whether we're going to find out whether the ONS has indeed been sending people to full fact, because the next question is why. But on the subject of uh, freedom of information, uh, let's switch to the MHRA. And I'm going to say a big thank you to the person that uh, pointed us to their freedom of information. Let's bring it up on screen. So this was dated the 8th of September 2021. And uh, here's the re reply from MHRA. It says, thank you for your email dated the 11th of August 2021, whereby you requested the following information. How many of those deaths on your yellow card reporting system have you sought permission to follow up? How many did you actually get permission to follow up of the above for how many were post-mortem details available? It says in response to your first and second question to submit a yellow card report, we require certain personal information. We ask for the reporter's name and contact details so we can get in touch if we need more information on their case. This information is outlined in our privacy policy, which can be viewed, viewed via this link. Therefore, the MHRA does not need to seek permission to follow up once a report has been submitted. Now, just before I go to the meat of uh, what we found in this, uh, Alex, for you, this is the usual disingenuous speak from the MHRA because, of course, the public would assume that they are the people initiating the need for a post-mortem to establish exactly whether a vaccine uh, did result in a death or not. But of course, what's being given here is, well, no, 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 it's not for the MHRA to do this. It's, it's for the individual who's putting forward the yellow card report. Or have I got that yeah, wrong? Yes, so uh, the... The pretense there is that by filling in a yellow card or in other countries, the equivalent adverse vaccine report or other adverse effect to other medicines, by the way, can be used on a yellow card. By filling that in, the assumption is that um, the country's uh, regulator will start the ball rolling. But no, as we're finding in many other ways, the MHRA and we think their equivalents around the Western world are simply saying, thank you very much. You have assuaged your conscience. Uh, it's now gone in a big bucket. And if I can take 30 seconds before we move on, because we were talking about fact checking, uh, people should find out what's happened in a court hearing recently where John Stossel, S-T-O-S-S-E-L, has sued Facebook, now calling itself Meta, because they allowed fake news to be stamped on his claims about the climate, courtesy of a fact checker called Climate Feedback. And why I'm mentioning this is because Facebook alias Meta has now said in court uh, that the uh, labels themselves, this is the key bit from the, the Facebook legal argument, the labels themselves are neither false nor defamatory. To the contrary, they constitute protected opinion. So we're seeing here a similar sleight of hand in a different domain that actually fact-checking is just publishing of opinion. And that's rather similar to what the MHRA is, is doing in a different sense. It is giving the impression that it's collecting facts and acting upon them, but ultimately it is treating the yellow card reports as opinion. Thank you for that, Alex. Well, let's get into the meat of the uh, freedom of information response uh, because I found this quite incredible. Here it is. It says, in response to your third question, it may be useful to know that it's not an obligatory requirement 
to submit a post-mortem when submitting a yellow card report with a fatal outcome. In order to identify how many yellow card reports associated with the COVID-9 vaccine and the fatal outcome had a post-mortem available, assessors at the MHRA would be required to manually review each case to determine if a post-mortem was performed and provided based on the supplied information. Therefore, this information is exempt for, from release under Section 12 of the Freedom of Information Act, um, where it specifies that a public authority may refuse requests where the cost of dealing with them would exceed the appropriate limit, which for central government is set at £600. We are dealing with people dying as a result of vaccines. That's what the MHRA's yellow card statistics appear to indicate, and we are now at 1,800 plus deaths. And the MHRA is telling members of the public uh, that it can't provide information because it's going to cost them £600. No, no, no. <clears throat> it's worse than that, Brian. They have said that uh, that they you know, assessors at the MHRA would be required to manually review each case to determine if a post-mortem was performed and provided based on supplied information. They're suggesting that that will cost more than £600, therefore it's exempt. But they're not answering the question about why that's not being done as a matter of routine. Well, why is there nobody following up on these? This is an admission. This, uh, this freedom of information answer is actually perfect because it is a clear admission by the MHRA that they are doing nothing with, you know, it, it's 1,860 deaths and they haven't followed up on a single one. No, because the onus is thrown back on the families that they should be the ones getting an order. Uh, well, well, a, a but, but, well that, but even if that's the case, the point is uh, they're not following up with the families to find no. out whether that was done. No. So, so that's an admission by the MHRA that they're doing nothing with this data. And this was the organisation, Mike, that spent a large amount of money on automated systems in order to be able to cope with yellow card adverse reactions. Uh, well, uh, there is other freedom of information information out there about the AI system, which cost them a million and a half pounds. And it turns out uh, that that AI system is purely there, uh, that when a yellow card uh, report is, um, is submitted, and perhaps some of the fields have not been filled in exactly correctly, that this AI system will correct those uh, uh, either empty or not quite correct fields. Field. Um, so the AI system itself doesn't analyze any of the data. It doesn't do any reporting. It's a million and a half pounds uh, wasted, really, as far as I can see. Total, totally wasted. So we have uh, well over a million adverse reactions logged, no investigation by the MHRA. We have over 1,800 deaths, no investigation by the MHRA. Yet the MHRA speaks uh, to the mainstream media as if it was investigating these effects. So this is a scam. But let's remember that some. The MHRA says that it hasn't got £600 to investigate the deaths of members of the UK public. Let's have a look at a little video clip. We have shown this before, but let's watch it again to see what the MHRA board says about money. Again, I wasn't, your colleagues will allow me, one of my key points I wanted to raise was around the rating of that particular issue. I'm wondering why um, you know, the use of the available cash reserves is actually 
you label it as amber red when it's quite clear with the forecast that we've presented to the Department of Health at our quarterly accountability meeting that we're not going to spend all the reserves. So that looks more than red, it looks like a failure to me. Um, I'm wondering why it's only been rated as amber red. Um, well, I guess there's still, there's still time to come. Um, personally, um, you know, I don't anticipate us being able to spend all of it, uh, but I do anticipate us uh, being able to eat into it. Um, so, um, in the last couple of weeks, we've spent uh, north of half a million, approaching a million on various activities. There are more underway to address critical areas. So, um, we've currently got an available balance of about 14 or 15 million. Will we address all of that? Probably not, but we are attempting uh, to use it sensibly uh, for justifiable purposes. So there's the casual admission by the board. They've blown half a million, possibly a million. They're trying to spend it sensibly. So it would appear that they're not spending it sensibly at the moment. They don't have £600 in order to work through whether somebody has died as a result of vaccines. This is truly obscene uh, behaviour by the MHRA. But let's uh, rub it in and have a look at this clip, which shows a little bit of the utter confusion uh, and chaos inside the MHRA as a result of these IT systems. Um, I just had a question on the cash balance. So firstly, John, thank you for the paper, really, really interesting. Um, and our significant underspend on, um, on the cash balance. I think it was uh, highlighted um, that we'd spent less on our transformation due to delays in in technology and then uh, later in, in Michael's paper um, it talks about the reluctance to design our new uh, ways of working and new processes given that we haven't um, uh, moved forward on, on the IT systems and I just wondered if you could elaborate on that a little because um, you know sometimes it's better to design new ways of working without linking them directly to technology um, uh, it allows you a, a greater freedom of thought um, and better requirements for, for your technology when, when it comes in. Uh, no, I think I'd certainly agree with you on that. I mean, there is no doubt that, you know, compared with our plans of four or five months ago, uh, projects have slipped to the right. Um, there are a number of factors. And by that you mean delayed? Mm -hmm. Delayed. Just translate yeah. it. Sorry, <laughs> members of the public. <laughs> uh, yes, delayed. Um, so, so some of that, I think, is more work to do between transformation uh, and the IT side. We were actually discussing um, at Exco probably this week, last week, that actually we've sli slightly seen them as two distinct streams, whereas actually they need to be one uh, integrated one. Uh, and I know Claire joining us uh, is very aware of that. Um, we're also talked about the need to prioritise uh, activities. June uh, has set out a challenge of you know five key things that actually we need to deliver. Um, I know our IT colleagues have uh, experienced a sense of frustration, which is we asked them to go and prioritise a list of projects, uh, and actually the list came back longer than when they were actually set, uh, sent out. Um, so we do need to slightly overcome um, that culture, I think. Um, the other aspect is just a slightly technical one, we are in the process of retendering our application outsource provider. Um, that's reached the uh, evaluation stage. 
but the business case approval is likely to take three or four months uh, with Department of Health, Cabinet Office and Treasury. Um, and we have a bit of a catch-22 around um, do you give new projects uh, to the current provider uh, or the next one. So a stumbling delivery with hand over mouth for much of it. And uh, well, what have we got? Chaos. This is an organisation which has apparently absorbed millions of pounds in order to have an IT system to protect the public. But as we've just shown, it's clear that the MHRA is doing nothing of the sort and it doesn't even know whether it's spending the money it has wisely. It is incredible uh, once you start to look at these uh, MHRA board meetings. Go on to YouTube, look at these meetings. Some of them are two and a half hours long with much laughter and merriment in many of them. And as people have pointed out, no social distancing, no masks. And yet this is the organisation failing to protect uh, the public. Alex. When you are front confronted with long YouTube videos in which people mumble and speak away from the microphone, the researcher's secret weapon is this. Uh, YouTube has, an, in most cases, the functionality, if you go to the more button, that's the three horizontal dots, whether you're on a computer or a mobile device, if you hit that, you will usually find your way to an automated transcript which you can then use Control F or Command F to search through. And if you hit the word that you found, you can even jump to that point in the audio. It is an immense time saver and searchable for those who want to find out what's going on in things that people had to upload but didn't really want the public to watch. Thank you for that, Alex. But I also just encourage people to go and view uh, using those techniques or dipping into those board meetings because it would be a very good thing if the MHR suddenly realised that hundreds of thousands of members of the UK public are now onto their every word. I think this would produce a slight difference in their uh, attitude when they're in these board meetings. We'll leave it there. Okay, so uh, let's uh, have a look at the mail here with the headline. Care bosses warn homes won't have space to deal with NHS, kicking out as many patients as possible and demand health chiefs test everyone discharged to avoid devastating repeat of first wave. But of course, this is exactly what we're seeing, a repeat of the first lockdown where people were kicked out of hospitals into care homes, and that resulted in huge excess mortality. So uh, what's this article saying? Care bosses have warned uh, homes will not have enough staff to deal with the NHS uh, orders for hospitals to discharge as many patients as soon as practically possible. Now, where's this demand? This demand is coming as a result of this so-called Omicron surge, uh, but it's coming as a result of what is described in this article as shocking modelling by number 10 scientists that warned admissions could exceed levels seen during the darkest days of the nation's second wave last January with when 4,000 infected patients were needing medical care every day. Um, so uh, I, I've been told, I haven't confirmed it uh, at this point, but I've been told that uh, uh, some uh, patients are leaving hospital in Plymouth uh, to go to um, uh, the Holiday Inn in Plymouth uh, because it's not just care homes that people are being sent to, but it's also hospices and hotels uh, if it is, uh, quotes, safe to do so. Um, and uh, so the, the question is, are they attempting to create a, a similar event to what happened last year? Because surely lessons must have been learned, no? 
well, I don't think uh, they need any lessons, Mike, because we have an agenda which is rolling out if more elderly and vulnerable people die. That is part of the agenda. Um, we are just seeing the NHS now completely dismantled. We've talked about elements of it being dismantled. We're now seeing its supposed resendetra going. It is not going to be there to treat people who are sick or have medical needs. Absolutely. So uh, sticking with this, uh, 750 army personnel have been deployed to uh, roll out the, the boosters. Uh, and uh, so Defence has supported over 430 tasks uh, as part of Operation Rescript. Uh, I'm not sure how many people have heard of that, but Operation Rescript is Defence's support for the UK's response to the pandemic. So 750 Armed Forces personnel have been made available to support the NHS, uh, 100 personnel in Scotland, 600 in England, uh, and in addition, 50 personnel will provide planning support to NHS England. 41 planners will deploy to NHS trusts across England. Uh, and, uh, well, this quote is from uh, the beginning of the year, but it's uh, uh, Brigadier Phil Prosser, who is in charge of this uh, this particular operation, uh, saying, I think it's important to note that all aspects of a work have been in support of the NHS. My team are embedded uh, with them. And in the past eight weeks, uh, we've been working with some of the most professional, dedicated and amazing people I've had the honour to serve alongside. We are one team with one team in capital letters, uh, or at least the, the, the initial uh, of each word in capital letters. So that is uh, another trademarked uh, brand. Uh, but, uh, you know, military embedded with the NHS, uh, they're dedicated uh, and they're working with these amazing people. One team, this is... Uh, more fusion doctrine at work. Um, but uh, let's just have a quick look at uh, what Dominic Raab had to say uh, in Parliament yesterday. Um, sorry, uh, that's uh, mislabeled. Or is it uh, Alex? Yes, uh, what's happening here, if you look at the um, timestamps at the bottom of the uh, image of this screen grab, the point is there are only a few minutes difference between these. It is the Justice uh, Secretary, Dominic Rabb, uh, interesting that he's talking about COVID issues, but we've seen in Northern Ireland that the Justice Minister, Naomi Long, is doing a lot of that too. So at UK level, Dominic Rabb, the Justice Secretary, is doing the round of the breakfast shows, and he's asked first by Sky News's Kay Burley, how many Omicron variant patients are there in hospital at the moment? And he's then asked by the BBC's breakfast show a number of minutes later, a matter of minutes later, the same question. See if you can count the difference. You said a significant number in hospital. How many? Well, the last I saw was uh, in the low hundreds. Uh, I think 250 the last time I looked. But of course, the data is being uh, updated. all the 250. Just uh, Thank you. interested to know what the latest information you have today as of 7.40 this morning about the number of people in hospital with this new variant, with Omicron. Um, well, I, I know we've had one death. I think we've got um, uh, nine people uh, who are in hospital um, with it, uh, or, or still a relatively low number. Um, and we're tracking that very carefully, but the data is shifting uh, all the time. So that is something like a 25-fold drop in the number of hospitalised Omicron variant patients in British hospitals within six minutes? Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing a rumour. Uh, so, sorry for messing up the introduction of that video, by the way, but I'm hearing the uh, I'm hearing a rumour that uh, uh, other MPs have have made similar comments uh, and had to 
push back on them as well. I think Matt Hancock said 100. Um, so the, what I'm going to say it's, it's easy to explain this type of thing because the government as a whole is now lying on a regular basis to the UK public. And because they are lying, departments will get caught out. And so Dominic Rabb might have believed, might have believed he was telling the truth, but the data that's coming through to him can't be relied upon because the government overall is lying. No, and indeed. So uh, so let's have a look at this. This is The Citizen, uh, and uh, the headline is Omicron variant could signal end of COVID-19. Uh, and they're quoting this uh, person, Richard Feidland, uh, Friedland, sorry, who's the chief executive of NetCare, which is a healthcare provider in South Africa. Uh, and he said this, if in the second and third wave we had seen these levels of positivity to tests conducted, we would have seen very significant increases in hospital admissions, and we're not seeing that with Omicron. Uh, he said, uh, I actually think there's a silver lining here, and this may signal the end of COVID-19. Um, and he went on to say this is potentially the evolution that we saw with the Spanish flu, uh, that it eventually didn't burn itself out, but it became a lot less virulent. And of course, well, even Theresa May was talking about this in Parliament a couple of days ago. This is the normal evolution of a virus that uh, as uh, new uh, mutations come out, uh, they become much more contagious, uh, but they become a lot less virulent and uh, a lot less likely to cause uh, serious illness. But the question is, is that true? Um, so I want to highlight this article here, uh, Boris Johnson's Biggest Blunder. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I strongly recommend that people read this. It's a very interesting article, but basically uh, amongst the many points that are being made in it, uh, is the suggestion that actually uh, being boosted and vaccinated and boosted at this point makes you much more likely to have some kind of uh, much worse reaction to a less virulent virus uh, than, uh, than not being vaccinated at all. Um, and so the author is saying that boosting UK now is putting gas on the fire, as it were, um, so I do strongly recommend that people read this. It gives a slightly different uh, view to the, the one expressed by the uh, South African uh, gentleman there. But, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think it's, it's making a very interesting point and people should read it. Um, so Alex, uh, let's come on to this then. Pastoral letter to parents, uh, re-COVID vaccination for children. And this isn't just any old preacher speaking here. Uh, this is one of the most prominent ministers in Scotland. Uh, he and his congregation, after harassment by the official Church of Scotland, which led uh, ultimately to him being served a writ at home at his manse to quit by Police Scotland. Uh, he's gone independent, so they now call themselves not St George's Trongate anymore, but the Tron Church. They no longer meet in Glasgow's uh, swanky Buchanan Street in the city centre, but elsewhere. He's written a pastoral letter to parents regarding COVID vaccination. Uh, Dr. Philip is uh, personally known to me in the past, a very solid man, a very softly spoken, and uh, he has a background as a cardiologist. So that qualifies him doubly, although uh, many clergy of various religious traditions who may be watching uh, should not doubt that they also have a pastoral uh, responsibility, whether or not they're medically qualified to say similar things. So Dr. Philip says that just one known very serious adverse effect of these novel vaccines, he's packing in the right observations, is that of myocarditis. For those who haven't already, you should see the Doctors for COVID Ethics Symposium 2, which is on ukcolumn.org homepage at the moment. You can see it physically illustrated in um, 
pathological slides uh, that the killer cells have clustered in the organs, uh, including in this case the heart, causing inflammation because of the blood clotting. This has been reported, says Dr. Philip, in many countries. And then he goes on to say, despite claims, here's his uh, ability to pick up on weasel words, in this case, adjective, despite claims that many of these cases were mild and resolved, from my own background in cardiology, I can tell you not confidently, he says, but categorically, which means without reserve, without exception, that the term, the use of the term mild is misleading and that in virtually every single case of this, there will be lasting damage to some degree in the heart. He goes on to say that there's a high rate of progressing to heart failure with myocarditis, and that this is why young people who have been affected with this condition end up needing heart transplants. Needing a heart transplant is not known to be a mild condition. He goes on to say, so given the already known, and he's italicized that for emphasis, note that he's not shouting, but he's trying hard to get the message across. Given the already known potential harms, of which myocarditis is just one, and the entirely unknown potential long-term adverse effects, the decision by the UK's four chief medical officers to go against the Joint Com Committee's advice and to vaccinate under 16 is plainly not scientific. Uh, the one-liner under that is, this is clearly a political decision, not a medical one, nor is it moral or ethical. Well, Dr. Philip combined the medical and the ethical authority of being a cardiologist turned minister of the gospel. So he is able to say quite categorically, this is a political decision. He finishes, and I won't read the whole of this slide out, by saying that he has a responsibility, and I think people in all religious traditions will agree with this, that it is uh, his responsibility is to make clear that parents have responsibility to, to see to their children's upbringing and well-being. Parents have the ultimate judgment call on what may harm their children and to weigh up the, resp the respective risks and likelihoods and outcomes of those uh, events uh, or those recommended pathways. So uh, do go and find that on the Tron Church. And uh, the caliber of people speaking out is quite good now. Uh, there are several Anglican equivalents of Dr. Philip in terms of dissidents, I would mention Dr. Phil, that's Phil with two L's, Saker, S-A-C-R-E, and uh, Dr. Um, sorry, uh, Reverend Jamie Franklin. Both of those Anglican ministers are taking similar positions. So there are some, even in the established churches, who have the gumption to point this out now. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, well, we've got a little bit of video here from, well, from Plymouth, actually. Indeed, and while it rolls, you might like to see whether you can identify this large, presumably city centre church that's on screen. The point is that the local activist for independent political standards, uh, Darren of Plymouth, well known to some of our viewers, I think, and his presence on Twitter, he stood as a, uh, a candidate for office before. Darren went round three sides of this large, grey, hulking uh, city centre church in Plymouth, which is serving as a jab centre. Of course, this is when the uh, drumbeat started a few days ago. Get your booster. There's a race against the clock. The whole of Britain must be given its booster. Uh, by the way, my Dutch wife, when hearing this the other day, said, what are they going to call shot for? Is it going to be super booster or, or booster with jingle bells on it? Anyway, the get your booster. And Darren is, is filming here that three sides of this church, you might be able to recognize it or not, uh, have got a, a long snaking queue around it. And by the way, half of the crowd um, are, are wearing masks outside in the December cold of Devon. Not something you see in most parts of the Netherlands. But Brian, I think, was going to come in there. I think he might have recognized where it is. Well, it's, it's Motley Plain is the part of Plymouth yeah. for local people. Aha, uh -huh. but here's the point. Darren of Plymouth, who tweets as Jana Darren, uh, went back the next day. 
and he said, massive queue here yesterday for booster jab in Plymouth. Nobody here today, including Vax unit, which I think means the staff, which is weird. There is his shot. How do we account for the total lack of the hundreds of people who were snaking around the building, as he says, and he's, a, he's got a solid track record, just the day before in the same location, in a week when the media campaign is so constant that every uh, newspaper headline uh, for uh, certainly two days ago in Britain was get the booster, get the booster. What's the difference from one day to the next? Well, we can't account for that because I don't know what the details are, Alex. So, so unfortunately, but uh, but okay, let's let's move on then to uh, uh, well, you're going to have to pronounce his name, uh, but uh... yes, we the other day we played. I think it was when Patrick was on on Friday. Um, the star speech given by an, a member of parliament of the European Parliament, sorry, it was David on Monday, a member of Euro the European Parliament for Alternative für Deutschland. You can see half of her in frame in a moment, but here we have uh, Mr. Sincic of Croatia, a non-aligned member. So even at a European Parliament level, there are some who are not in hoc to parties who can in independently represent the people as they're meant to in any sensible constitution. Uh, Doctor, sorry, uh, Mr. Sincic is talking here in the first extract we're going to play about the, frankly, the fraud and misrepresentation uh, which was brought to his own body, the European Parliament, when uh, earlier in 2021, in February, uh, members of the European Parliament were assured they could vote for emergency authorization of their products because they were claimed to be so super efficient. That was the be all and end all of the claim. So let's listen first to Mr. Sincic uh, evaluating that claim. In the beginning, I will reply to President of the Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, who called for a debate on mandatory vaccination. The answer is simple, no, you cannot mandate these medical products. And why you cannot mandate these medical products? Because data and science have shown us um, that these products are far, far, very far away from what was promised. I will repeat it over and over again. On 25th of February, in, in here, here in Brussels, in European Parliament, there was a committee and seven directors, CEOs from major pharmaceutical companies, from Moderna and AstraZeneca to Pfizer and Novavax, were there. And we, as MEPs, had a right to ask them questions about the, their medical products. And they said it had extreme efficiency, 90, 95%, all those high percentages. And nine months later, what we see in the data, what science and statistics shows us, it shows us that the efficiency is far, far less than it was promised. This is the, this, the benefit, the efficiency is the benefit. And there are also costs to the benefit. What are the costs? The costs are, also, of course, side effects. Every product has its side effects. So what does the science tell us about side effects? That there are more reported side effects, adverse re re reactions to these COVID vaccines than all the other vaccines combined in several decades. We have, a, we have products of questionable quality, and this is why you cannot mandate them. You cannot mandate them.
Pretty categorical there by Ivan Sinchich. He's actually seen through a lot of the guff there. Um, he's pretty close to saying that the uh, jab manufacturers lied to the European Parliament uh, in order to get their permissions uh, for emergency use authorization or the EU's equivalent term, which is slightly different. Now, in the next few seconds uh, of the same appearance, which we're going to hear, uh, he rather proves that it is not just a talking point in the common law English-speaking world uh, that we have inalienable or unalienable God-given rights, particularly the immunities, the negative rights not to have things done to us. Mr. Sinčić in Croatia is very well aware of the same thing. Let's have a listen. And when it comes to freedom, more and more I feel that our constitutional rights and our human rights have been kidnapped and that we have to pay ransom every six months, one year. We have to pay ransom to get our freedoms back. This is simply unacceptable. Our rights are unalienable. That means that no kidnapper can take them from us. Apart from Mr. Sinchich's splendid English, uh, his constitutional knowledge, I think, outranks that of many national and international level British politicians and puts them to shame. Just after I finished that uh, uh, clip, the next utterance from Mr. Sinchich was equally good, which is that it is as simple as that and we will not accept anything less. Uh, so many people can intellectually assent, nod to what Mr. Sinchich has said, but they need also to go on to his next sentence, which is it is quite simple. It is as simple as that. Don't have the wool pulled over your eyes that are, ah, yes, but there is also the, the, the dimension of people feeling uh, assured, people feeling uh, reassured, and therefore we have this public safety and harms element. No, we don't. It is as simple as your unalienable rights. Okay, thank you for that, Alex. Now we're right out of time, but uh, just we'll just end off with a couple of things. First of all, uh, this mail headline, Omicron gets serious, Norway brings in booze ban, bars are ordered to stop selling uh, alcohol but can stay open. Uh, if they don't serve alcohol. And this is, this is just uh, so ridiculous. It's uh, the same situation in Northern Ireland at the moment where you're required to show uh, a COVID pass if you're going into a pub or a restaurant that sells alcohol. But if you go into uh, a venue that doesn't sell alcohol, you don't have to show your COVID pass. So uh, clearly Corona is, uh, is targeting places that, uh, that sell alcohol at the moment and, and governments around the world must, must have had some kind of tip off about that. Uh, and have decided to put this this regulation in alcohol bad. Uh, uh, my Paul says it all, Mike. Uh, may, maybe the virus drinks alcohol, and they're trying to prevent it becoming an alcoholic virus. Well, that's possibly one answer. Uh, but my brain is also full of Lou in Cornwall, where there was a line around parked dinghies, small sailing boats, um, saying that it was a COVID restricted area. So. I think probably COVID goes for a few drinks and then goes sailing. sailing. Is that it? Yes, could be. Okay, and we'll end with this then. Um, so uh, World Economic Forum, as most people will know, uh, issued eight predictions for the world in 2030 uh, some time ago. Uh, and its first prediction was that you will own nothing and you'll be happy. Um, so uh, what was the response from the fact checkers to this? Well, of course, uh, here is uh, Reuters fact check. The World Economic Forum does not have a stated goal uh, to uh, have people own nothing by 2030. Uh, and of course, that may well be true because that, that was a prediction and it was based on some advice from some World Economic Forum people. It doesn't mean that they have a stated goal, uh, but uh, that's really sort of picking uh, at the edges of it, I think, particularly because as we can see from the uh, Express yesterday, uh, car ownership 
could be banned in massive overhaul of UK roads. Uh, they're calling this a tipping point. Um, and uh, so this is uh, government, uh, Department of Transport ministers saying, really, we need to get rid of car ownership by 2030. Strangely enough, just a coincidence that it happens to be by that year. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, because you're going to be happy, happier, much happier without your car than with your car, obviously. Um, but then we've got uh, we've got this. And uh, I think this was today. Drivers run the risk of serious damage to car engines uh, after using the new E10 fuel. This, of course, is the fuel that's been brought in to, uh, uh, to make fuel greener. Uh, it has more ethanol content uh, and it's destroying people's engines in many, many cars over a certain age, perhaps. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, you, if you're unwilling or not quite ready yet to, to get rid of your car and no longer have ownership of your car, you've got to find ways to, to encourage, encourage you to you do to that. Uh, and this seems like as good a way as any, Brian. Yeah. And of course, the fuel efficiency of the E10 is about 20% less than normal fuel. So this is a con in saying it's greener in the first place. Yes. Um, so did we want to, uh, did we want to end with... Uh, uh, our final slides. I think there was a positive one at the bottom, which would be a good place to go. Viewers, well, viewer success story, I think, might be a, a good one to end on there. Okay. But you'll have to do it quickly, Alex. Very quickly, Alex. Certainly. I'll get my um, copy up here and uh, oh, I can read it from there. A viewer writes, and this, for those who are members and want to find it, it is at the top of page two of the News Extra. Uh, upload for the 6th of December. A viewer says, I wanted to share an experience I had yesterday, a small potential victory. I returned to Britain on the Saturday the 4th after giving up a very well-paid job abroad uh, in protest at the jab coercion, but more importantly, to take up my patriotic duty to defend the freedom of my family and country. I was told I had to provide my jab status in order to get my day two test certificate by the provider of the test results. I challenged this immediately, as well as also having to declare my ethnicity. Summary of the conversation follows. The first reply he got from challenging it was from a low-level staff member who said, I simply had to. I replied that they have no right as a third-party private company to insist on such information when it is completely unrelated to the outcome of my results. Then what appeared to be a more senior member of staff replied and tried to say it was the government requesting the information. It was nothing more than was requested by the government for the passenger locator form. I explained that the government gave the option not to declare one's health status, and that by not giving this option, they, the company, were trying to coerce or blackmail private medical information from me. I said that it had not been made clear when the product was advertised. I ended the conversation by saying, if they didn't give me my certificate without me having to give this information, I'd demand a refund and seek legal advice. A short while later, I got a reply saying, they acknowledged my concern, wonderful British language there, and would contact the lab to find a workaround to get me my certificate. I've studied some law formally, but more so personally, and I will openly admit that I'm not sure I was right about the Data Protection Act and right to privacy of health information. However, when I mentioned it, when I threatened to seek legal advice, they changed their tone immediately and became more accommodating. It's time to get legal on people, particularly if you're the kind of uh, softly spoken person who doesn't normally like to, do, like to do that. If you're faced with crooks and cheats, this is the way to go. And of course, if one person makes that challenge, it's a very small thing. If 100,000 make the same challenge, it's a very big thing. But uh, good to see. Yes. OK, uh, we've got to go. We will be back in a few minutes on the main live stream with some extra. And uh, well, otherwise, we'll see you on Friday for the last UK column before Christmas. The last 2021 21. UK column. OK, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we will be back on Friday. 
stay with us for extra. Bye-bye.